0: Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource, that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, you will find where we're going to be at the very bottom of page 879. As we've been seeing, Jesus' actions upon arriving in the city of Jerusalem have created major waves, and they have set the stage for a series of confrontations that Jesus is having with the religious leaders in the temple. And this morning, Jesus is going to continue to reveal his identity as the Son of God as he demonstrates divine wisdom in his disputes with the religious leaders. And so we're in Luke chapter 20, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So last week, Jesus asserted his identity. And and his authority as the Son of God in the parable of the wicked tenants. And verse 19 is sort of a a transition verse. It wraps up what has happened in verses 1 through 18 and it sets the stage for what is going to happen next. And we see that the the religious leaders are super angry with Jesus because they know that he has implicated them as the wicked tenants in his parable who are going to receive God's judgment. But they also know that they can't do anything about it because the common people are on his side. And so instead, they decide to send in spies, people who pretend to be admirers of Jesus, but who in in actuality are are secretly trying to get him to say or do something that, that they can pounce on and use against him. In fact, specifically, Luke tells us that that they're looking to get him to do something that would allow allow them to turn Jesus over to the Roman governor, who at this point in time is a man named Pontius Pilate. So you may remember that under Roman rule, the Jews did not have the authority to sentence someone to death. That was reserved for the Roman government alone. And so if the religious leaders want to destroy Jesus, which we've seen they do, then they're ultimately going to have to get him on the wrong side of the Romans. Of course, Jesus has already predicted that eventually he's going to be turned over to the Romans. But at this point, the religious leaders are still trying to find their excuse to do that. And so in verse 21, these these spies approach Jesus. And you can just hear the -the over-the-top flattery that they try to use as as they begin. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Right, and then they ask him a question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In other words, according to the Old Testament law, is it acceptable for Jews to pay tribute in submission to a pagan king? Now, this is not just any old question. Uh, this is a question that strikes at the very heart of, of of Jewish-Roman tensions for generations. And in fact, only about 25 years before this, there was a significant rebellion by the Jews over taxation that did not end well. And so, uh, really, this is designed to be a trap. Either Jesus is going to answer that the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, in which case he is going to lose popularity among the common people, who will see him more like a tax collector, Or he's going to say that Jews shouldn't pay their taxes, which would then give the the religious leaders an opportunity to hand him over to the Romans as someone who is trying to stir up trouble. Either way, the the leaders are pretty sure that they've got Jesus cornered this time. No matter how he answers, he's going to lose. Of course, Jesus sees right through them, and he understands what's going on. And in response, he asks for a denarius to be brought to him. Now we've said before that a Denarius was the daily wage for a common laborer, and we have a picture of one up on uh, the screen. And Jesus asks a question in response. He says, "Whose likeness and inscription does it have?" And the answer is Caesar's. That is a, a picture of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman governor or the Roman emperor, uh, at this particular p- time. Uh, we, today put m- m- pictures on our money as a way of honoring people who have contributed to our society in significant ways, but the Roman emperor put his image on money as a reminder to everyone of who is ultimately in charge. Uh, And you can't can't see it on this particular picture, but the inscription on the coin uh, lauds the emperor as the son of the divine Augustus, which is another way of saying the son of God. And, of course, there's a, an irony there under the circumstances. But in verse 25, Jesus says, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, he says that this money has Caesar's image on it, which means that he has uh, authority and, and a rightful claim to it, and so it should be given to him. Right, but on the other hand, Jesus says to render to God the things that are God's. And there's a, a play on words here. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are told that mankind is created in the image of God. We as people bear God's image. And so God has a rightful claim over our whole lives. And he calls us to give them to him. And so to draw this out one step further, we could say that under the supreme authority of God, there, there is a place for rightful human authorities that God institutes in order to bring order to society. And so it is appropriate to submit to them within the limited bounds of their authority, which the New Testament explains in more detail elsewhere. All right, so Jesus has answered this either-or question with a both-and answer. You don't have to choose between submission to God and submission to human authority. And as the religious leaders hear this in verse 26, Luke tells us that that marveling at his answer, they became silent. They say, huh, we didn't expect that. We've got to give him credit. That was was actually pretty good. And so after two rounds, the Pharisees last week and now the the religious leaders this morning, after two rounds, the, the, the score is religious leaders zero and Jesus two. And we'll see what happens in round three as we pick up again, beginning in verse 27. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without having children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage." For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. So picking up again in verse 27, Jesus is next challenged by a group of Sadducees. Now, Sadducees were the exact opposite of Pharisees. All right, we know from other sources that uh, the Sadducees only affirmed the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, what's often called the, the Pentateuch, uh, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. They did not uh, affirm it. They didn't believe in supernatural beings like angels or demons. And as Luke points out here in verse 27, they also did not believe in resurrection. Right, so the Sadducees think that you get this life, and once you die, that's, that's it. So a group of these guys comes up to Jesus, and, and they pose a trick question of their own. Based on the Old Testament institution of levirate marriage, where if a man died uh, before having a child, his brother was expected to take his wife and have a child who would legally be considered uh, the the son of the the brother so that his lineage could continue. And so they they take this and and they pose a hypothetical situation uh, where a a woman uh, has a husband who dies and, and they weren't able to have children, so she's taken by his brother, but then he dies before they're able to have children. And on and on this goes, there's actually seven brothers, and each brother takes her as his wife, but then dies before they're able to have children. And so the Sadducees ask Jesus, when, when the resurrection happens, whose wife will this woman be? Now, in response, Jesus completely blows up their, their caricature of the resurrection. Right, the fact is that the resurrection is not simply a continuation of this life. It is a completely different kind of existence. He tells them in verses 34 and 35 that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. And the reason for that, in verse 36, is that they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of of the resurrection. Now I realize that's a mouthful, right? but the bottom line is that marriage was instituted at creation in part for the purpose of procreation, for, for filling the earth with people. And that is a purpose that will no longer be necessary in the resurrection because nobody will die and need to be replaced in the resurrection. Everyone will be uh, immortal. Instead, he says that we become like the angels. Now, for the record, verse 36 has often been misused, uh, misunderstood to, to uh, the effect that when we die, we become angels, and that is not true. That's not what Jesus is saying here. People don't become angels when they die, right, Jesus says that we become like angels in the sense that angels are immortal and are not given in marriage. That will be true for us as well in the resurrection. Well, it will be true of those who are considered worthy to attain to the resurrection, right? Don't miss that in verse 35. And and Jesus frames it this way, serves as a warning to these unbelieving Sadducees that they are currently on the outside looking in. He doesn't talk about when you guys experience eternal life in the resurrection. He refers to those who will experience it. But not only does Jesus beat these Sadducees at their own game, he goes on to prove the reality of the resurrection on their own terms, using uh, the one part of the Old Testament that they do accept. In verse 37, Jesus says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. And he refers them to Exodus chapter 3. All right, when the, the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush and commissions him to go to Egypt and deliver his people out of slavery, he identifies himself by saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob. Now, this is is subtle, but he doesn't say that I was the God of Abraham, and then I was the God of Isaac, and then I was the God of Jacob. He says I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the implication that Jesus draws from this is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must, in some sense, still be alive. They may be dead physically. But spiritually, they are still alive and waiting for the day of resurrection, which must be true after all. You see it right there in Moses. Now, when some of the scribes hear this, they affirm Jesus' answer. They say, you've, you've spoken well. And in fact, we see in verse 40 that it's gotten to the point now where nobody is willing to ask Jesus any more questions. Because every time they do, he just proves himself to be even wiser. Right, this, this strategy of trick questions just keeps on backfiring. And so after three rounds, we have religious leaders zero, Jesus three, and now nobody wants to play anymore. Right? But Jesus isn't finished yet. And we're going to see that as we pick up one last time beginning in verse 41. It says, But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And so as we pick up again in verse 41, Jesus has silenced his critics, but he still has something to say to them. And so he challenges them with a question of his own when he asks, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, it it may be helpful to remember here that the term Christ is not properly a name, right? Um, it's, it's It's a term, a title. Oftentimes we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, a lot like we might refer to Bob Smith or something like that. But Christ is not a name, it's a title. It's another word for Messiah, right? So when we refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ, we're talking about Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so the question here is, how can people say that the Messiah is David's son. Now, of course, we know that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. That's uh, clear in the Old Testament. And we've seen the blind man in, in Jericho even identify Jesus in that way back in chapter 18. But Jesus points out that that stands in a certain tension to what David himself says in Psalm 110, verse 1, where he writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool now interestingly out of all of the old testament psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the new testament all right there, there is clearly something that the new testament authors see in psalm 110 that they keep drawing things out of over and over again all right and, and in this psalm if you look at, at the psalm in the old testament And you'll see that the first instance of Lord is written in all capital letters, which indicates to us that that's referring to to God's personal name, what we know of as as Yahweh. So the Lord God is the one who is speaking. But then the question is, who is he speaking to? Well, the second Lord, which is written in lowercase letters, is told to sit at God's right hand until God makes his enemies into a footstool for him to prop his feet up on. And so this is a a statement of supreme honor and authority, and it was rightly understood to be a reference to the Messiah. No one else is going to sit at God's right hand. And so David is talking about the future Messiah here, but that still doesn't answer the question. And so in verse 44, Jesus asks again, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now think a moment about Jesus' logic. I don't say ma'am or sir, certainly not Lord to my kids, because as their parent, I have authority over them, right? But here, David, Jesus' point, is that we have David, who is the king of Israel with no higher human authority, and yet he calls someone else Lord. And Jesus' point in asking the question is not that the Messiah is not going to be a descendant of David. The point is that he is going to be even more ...than a descendant of David, in such a way that the Messiah will be even greater than David... ...so that that David could refer to the Messiah as his Lord. In other words, David is recognizing here what we've seen in other places in the Old Testament... ...which is that the Messiah is not going to be a mere man. He is also going to be divine. Once again, Jesus is getting at the nature of his identity as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity. If you think all the way back to the beginning of the story, back in chapter 1, as Gabriel explains to Mary what's about to happen, he tells her that her child, is about this child, that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He says, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And Jesus is challenging to, that these religious leaders to understand that the Messiah is going to be the son of David and the son of God. But as Luke records no response from them to Jesus' question, and we're left to assume that they had nothing to say. Jesus has stumped them. He's answered their questions, but they are unable to answer So now we have religious leaders zero, Jesus four. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus' identity as the Son of God continues to come in clearer focus as his divine wisdom is on full display in answering the challenges of the religious leaders and humbling them with a challenge of his own. And we may remember back from chapter two when Jesus is 12 years old and in the temple, we saw that the, the teachers there were amazed at the wisdom and the insight that Jesus had in the, the questions that he asked and the answers that he gave. And that wisdom has only increased as he leaves the greatest minds of the day speechless. Or we could say that Jesus is the fulfillment of Proverbs. Right? He is the one in whom God's wisdom is perfectly embodied and, and who perfectly applies God's wisdom. And we know that that God's ways are higher than our ways. And that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And no matter how much these religious experts try, Jesus demonstrates that they simply aren't on his level. As it happens, it's it's this issue of Jesus' divine identity that is ultimately going to lead to his death. Because the religious leaders reject Jesus for who he is. I I, I just think if you want a picture... ...of the true nature of the human heart... ...that we are by nature at, in, at in, in, in enmity with God... ...enemies of God... ...then, then you've got it right here. Right? Because in the person of Jesus... ...God is literally standing right in front of these people. But rather than submitting themselves to him... ...they're arguing with him. They're, they're, they want to destroy him. They're, they're, they're plotting to kill him. But in God's wisdom this wisdom that is above their wisdom, it's Jesus' death that is ultimately going to lead to our salvation. We understand that that Jesus' identity as being fully God and fully man is the only way that he can save us from our sin. On the one hand, Jesus can die in our place as a substitute on the cross only because he is, in fact, fully human, like us. On the other hand, his sacrifice has infinite value only because he is also fully God. And this, this theme of the, the divine wisdom is fully displayed at the cross. Consider Paul's words in chapter 1 of his first letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, For the word of, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. is stronger than men or consider what Paul wrote later to the Colossians about Jesus that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus' wisdom reveals his divine identity and the bottom line is that Jesus can save anyone who is willing to turn from their sin and trust in what he has done to save them through his life, death, and resurrection. And he has given us his word, which is full of wisdom to direct our lives as we follow him in discipleship, as we seek to help others come to know and follow him also. Friends, if you want to know how to live, look to Jesus and obey his commands because he is the wisdom of God and he is willing and even pleased to give us wisdom if we seek it from him. So this morning, may we recognize Jesus for who he is and render to him the faith and obedience that he deserves. Let's pray together.